0: One of the big challenges that I think we've we've gone through and we're going through right now is timing, the timing of the market.
1: It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, AAA Adams. And today I'm with Mike Moran. How are you, Mike?
0: I'm very good, Adam. It's good to be here.
1: Oh, it's Really good to have you. I've been, I think, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for somewhere close to a year and a half. Is that what you uh, remember? Yeah, that's about right. I've been uh, working on it, but you've been busy on CNN and NBC and and uh, everything else that you're doing. For the listener, real quick, Mike is uh, managing partner of Preferred Climate Resilient Properties. Um, so that is. Uh, P-C-R-P for short. And then he's a globally recognized risk and sustainability advisor in commercial real estate, finance, tech, as well as some media sectors. Um, so we've got an expert on the podcast. I'm excited to have him. We've got a few questions queued up. Um, the first one that I wanted to ask you, Mike, is just take me way back when ever it was that you did your first ever real estate investment. What year was it? What were you thinking? What were you going through? Um, so you just take us back to that first deal.
0: So the first deal I did, I, kind of ironically, was in the UK. Uh, it was in the early 90s. I was a BBC correspondent uh, at the time, based in London. And the weird, bizarre world of British real estate is that it's actually cheaper much cheaper to own a house there than it is to rent. I mean, that's true in some markets here too, but it's it's almost universally true there. Um, so that was my first experience in single family. So I bought a house in the UK and I managed to sell it and only make twelve thousand pounds. And then you know five years later, it was worth like six times what I sold it for. But it, it was you know just really bad timing in the London market. It, I'd be I probably could have done nothing for the rest of my life if I just held on to that one property. But in terms of larger real estate, my brother is a contractor in Connecticut he and I have done a number of office deals uh, and some very large you know commercial space uh, retail space in the in his neighborhood basically he's in Fairfield County Connecticut which is you know the Gold Coast up there very high tax very high regulation
1: we own a property in fairfield county yep
0: yeah. um we we I went to high school there so that's how I uh, and oh. I met my what met my wife, Lori Santarelli, who, who you know and is yes. my partner at PCRP Group at Ludlow High School in Fairfield, Connecticut? So wow. my brother stayed and he's quite successful there. So we've done some deals together there. Uh, the first one was a downtown deal in West, a town called Westport, which is quite a wealthy town, kind of a, a far end New York commuter town. And it, was, it involved having to move a structure that was built. In the uh, probably early 1800s, it was the YMCA for Westport, Connecticut. But ultimately, uh, the deal involved a very complicated move of a historic building in order to build out a retail space. Uh, And my brother had a reputation that, uh, you know, allowed the town to trust him with this kind of historic gem. And so it was a tremendously complicated thing, though, Uh, you know, imagine, you know, you're not just building uh, something. Uh, you're not just dealing with getting, uh, you know, tenants in. You're also dealing with news crews watching you pick up a <laughs> 300-year-old structure that everybody in the town loves and move it down Main Street. So uh, it was pretty tricky. Uh, it went very well. And uh, that had a lot more to do with my brother, Chris, than myself.
1: <laughs> what's what's your current focus, Michael?
0: So Lori and I, uh, about a year ago, decided to launch uh, a Preferred Climate Resilient Properties based on some of what have, uh, what we had observed in different markets around the United States, but also on some of my background. I, I did a, a great deal of risk consulting for a global company called Control Risks. I was a partner there before I started my own firm. And you know what we noticed is that if you look at climate change and take the politics out of it, I know a lot of people don't buy by it in general. A lot of people think it's there. You can't do anything about it. We, I think it's there. It's a reality. And it's not about whether or not you're in a market where a hurricane's going to destroy your building. Let's face it, you could get hit by an asteroid on any place on the planet tomorrow, and that's it. There's nothing you could do about that. The fact is, the insurance companies now believe it. And mayors and governors now believe it, whether or not the administration of the moment believes it. So that means tax rates are going to rise in order to build infrastructure to mitigate uh, sea level rise. That means that insurance companies are looking for a way to kind of offload all the risk they've got in in large markets like Miami or, or or Charleston or any of these big coastal markets that are you know vulnerable to larger storms. That's not where I want to be. That's a margin killer. And I, I when I when I look at um, p and I want to make sure. I understand every possible risk to my business model and to the ultimate um, noi and i think this is a place where we can now start to look and say yeah that is a real risk insurance companies are doing reports all the time on how much they plan to raise rates in these regions and uh, no one seems to be socking it in the other side of it is though there's a real um, market for investments in places that are climate resilient. There's a certain type of investor that follows um, a kind of uh, social investment strategy. They want to be in sustainable properties. They want to be in sustainable businesses generally. So whether that's um, you know, fake meat companies or, or uh, markets where you're not, you know, you're not building properties on the edge of the ocean or floodplains or earthquake zones, frankly, those are places where I've been able to find people who are very interested in getting their money in there. Often those are high net worth individuals who are thinking beyond their own generation and maybe for uh, for their, uh, their children and grandchildren.
1: What advice do you have for the listener who wants to get into making sure that they're more climate resilient, re- recession resilient, and things like uh, talking about, you know, the oceans flooding? What, what advice do you have to help them to be able to be better at what you're doing?
0: So one of the things that I think we've learned since the turn of the century really is there's just no such thing anymore as a hundred year flood. That is just, it, it ha- the hundred year floods are happening every 10 years. And it's not just on the coast, it's a, along the Missouri and Mississippi valleys, anywhere where the, the large rivers are generally thought to be under control. Suddenly they're not. Um, rain has become more uh, unpredictable. Sometimes it doesn't come down for a long time, and then when it comes down, it comes down in biblical torrents, and that's not good for anybody because the flood, uh, you know, mitigation infrastructure is not built for that type of flow. You know, they're way, they're looking at certain amount of rainfall for a year; they can handle a little bit more, but if it really comes in in a big flood, you get things like you saw in Omaha a couple years ago, in Kansas City, in all sorts of markets that are great otherwise, but which have um, real vulnerabilities from a climate standpoint. So there are ways to look at this. NO, NOAA, uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, publishes some really detailed maps of uh, climate risk. And those maps now have been become the base data for insurance company and reinsurance companies who are starting to recalculate What it would really mean if something happened in a certain market, and those rates are, as you know, rates. Everybody who has a property knows that rates are going up. One of the um, kind of case studies you could look at is Hurricane Sandy in the Northeast, which was never on the big list of places where we thought every year during hurricane season, oh boy, New York and New Jersey are going to get slammed again. The fact is, if you're on the ocean, it can happen, and it happened in a really serious way, and it, it. the deaths, of course, were tragic, but what was most interesting about it was how unprepared the the infrastructure of the most sophisticated city in the planet, in some ways, was to deal with something like this. And it, even to today, there they have proposals to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars to upgrade infrastructure. Those proposals are not going to be paid for by the average Joe. They're going to be looking for people like you and me, people like, you know, the big investors, the out of state people who don't vote for governors in that state, things like that are really, you know, tax, tax tax-based tricks. They'll, they'll find a way for special assessments for, for big buildings that need to be protected from sea level. So those are the kind of things I think you need to think about, you know, and then some of it's also, you know, is your property, is the property itself that you're looking at, it does it have the capacity to be upgraded in a, in a sustainable way. So I know no-scaping was a real thing for a while, and it still is in some places. But no-scaping means that you have nowhere to put water. That means water just uh, either it's going to destroy your neighbor or it's, gonna, it's going to run through wildly through your property. So uh, people are starting to rethink that and think about how do you use landscaping to mitigate some of the drainage problems that you can have. And, that, and drainage problems create structural problems, let's face it. So there's all sorts of things that lead to other unexpected expenses. And those are the things that kill you when you, you, when you lay out your, you know, your, your NOI and you're looking at your cap rates when you're first buying, you know, you don't want the best day of the whole project to be the day that you closed, you know, and then it all goes downhill from there. You really want to be able to foresee some of the worst things that can happen going forward and prepare for them or it, you know sometimes you don't make the decision you don't pull the trigger because you can't answer those questions
1: wanted to find out with your company what are you doing differently so how how do you guys find markets so we've we've talked a lot about what you don't do, which is basically anything on the perimeter. but what are you specifically looking at like what do you, what do you look at when you guys? At uh, PCRP, I should have I should have had it written down. PCRP, P-C-R-P-P. Um, Yeah, <laughs> it's it's much easier than it sounds, but I have it written down as the whole thing. But yeah. what what do you guys what do you specifically look for that helps is more of a green flag than a red flag?
0: Yeah, the green flags for us are some of them are obvious. Some of the are the things everybody's looking for, which is uh, job creation uh, inward migration from other, uh, states, demographic, uh, favorable demographics. The, but there are some, there's some nuances in there because, you know, you can, you can point at a lot of very expensive cities and say, well, wow, there's a good one. Boston. Well, we can't afford Boston to be frank. And, uh, what we're not, what we're looking for is not to sit on a property that's just going to produce. We're looking for uh, value add. And I think value add is going to be in places that are growing where there is a multi multifaceted faceted economic base. So, you know, I stay away from, you know, auto towns. I stay away from oil towns. I stay away from uh, towns that are based strictly on um, things like tourism. Um, you know, I don't want to sound like uh, Pollyanna, but right now, if you're in a town that's based on tourism, it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough ride at the moment because that's a service industry and people just are not good doing that. So, um, but even in good times, there's, those swings can be pretty violent. So what I'm looking for, good examples would be Indianapolis, right? Indianapolis is the largest city in, in a state that has is practically had no recession for, for decades. I mean, it obviously is affected by the national economy, Indiana. But even during the 2008-2009 you know, downturn, Indiana was pretty solid. Uh, Raleigh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina- what tracks me there is there is a huge influx of people fleeing from homes in the Northeast, where the, ta- the Trump tax uh, cuts and the changes in uh, deductibility of, of, of income tax, or, or excuse me, property tax, has made their large properties in the Northeast unsustainable, particularly in retirement years. And these are people who, for some reason, have decided that North Carolina is far enough. They don't need to go to Florida. Florida's developed a kind of a cliche, you know, uh, I always think of Jerry Seinfeld's parents <laughs> down there. And, and so I think North Carolina, South Carolina are becoming real magnets for the Northeast. And the Northeast may be played out in many ways, but it's got an awful lot of people and an awful lot of money. And those people are moving to places like Raleigh. So Atlanta is another great example. Um, Atlanta has its own, it creates its own weather. It's a big city. And that's, I like that. I like big cities, even in this environment. And obviously there's risks now. We got to think about density. Does density now become an issue for people? It's a really interesting question. And the commercial side of my, um, my, my practice, reoccupation is the term being used for um, office buildings. And there's a huge change in what office building owners have to do now. They never had to win the favor of their tenants. They just had to keep the rent low and make sure there was no plumbing leaks, right? Now, things that were a nice to have have suddenly become questions of life and death, you know, a competent HVAC, and, you know, do we have, um, you know, ways to report issues before they become big problems, things like that. So, you know, th- this is a real shift to the I, I don't really think it affects multif- multifamily that much, in part because of the supply dynamics of multifamily nationally. We're in, we, we like the B and C, uh, properties. We're not into the luxury properties that we've lived in one. And I think the reality is people in B and C class multifamilies, they may very well like to get a single family home, but in the environment we're in right now, they can't get there. Post 2008, it becomes diffi- more difficult to get the mortgage and the supply, frankly, isn't there. The you know We've built a lot of multifamilies over the last uh, 10 years, but most of them are A and A plus, And that's not where the middle class is. So they are kind of stuck in that, which is, which is a sad thing societally. But on the other hand, it's a really good thing for demand. And I think demand's going to hold up much better in multifamily uh, you know, residential, certainly, than it is in commercial office space.
1: I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk a little bit about what it's taken you over the last little while to... To grow your own investment group and want want to talk about anything that with with growing that investment group, any challenges that you've had that the listener can avoid, and some of the things that you've done that have worked really well to grow that group
0: yeah, that's something I think about a lot, and i mean to to understand that uh, really perfectly at the little context that is. So I came out of a you know long career of W two corporate uh, you know jobs, and then before that journalism. So the idea of uh, you putting together an investment group was not something I was thinking about. I usually worked for companies that had their own investment group. And once I uh, I got married to Lori, you know my high school uh, dream girl, only about five years ago, the thinking became okay. Mike, you've done a lot of this kind of work. Why don't we start thinking about putting together an investment group? And one of the things that I was able to do, which was very fortunate, is I had spent uh, a good portion of my time working with people who were pretty financially sound in terms of their uh, their personal situations, but they were also pretty savvy investors. Uh, a lot of these people um, are on the East Coast because that's where my my career was. And so I started to socialize with them, the idea that, listen, we're all getting to a, you know, that, that age where you know, you're not gonna wanna get in a train and go into New York City and slave all day. At some point, you're gonna want your, your investments to work for you. And that line really resonated surprisingly with even some of the people who had been at you know, Morgan Stanley and, and HSBC, some of my friends who had some really serious careers in finance had really given very little thought to the value of passive income. And so I really was able to kind of bring them on board. That story tells itself. If you, if you all you have to do is lay out what passive income the, uh, is and what the advantages are from a tax standpoint. And it's particularly attractive to someone who's slaved away all their life in a state like New Jersey or New York or Massachusetts, where, you know, by and large, 45% of your income is gonna go, to the government, and then get distributed out to somebody else. So they were very excited about that. Now, the other side of the question was, you know, what kind of, you know, things do you not do? I think you have to be careful, like, as if you're cooking a delicate meal, when you're socializing your investors for the first time, and you're bringing them on board, and you get that, you get that kind of soft yes, right? I often find that within two weeks, I'm getting an email. So, so, Where's the deal? Where's the deal? I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. In fact, I talked to my brother and I talked to my sister-in-law and they're ready too. The the fact is, you know, especially, you know, in the situation we're in, we're we're really just starting out to be honest. We are looking at deals, but we're not going to bring you a substandard deal and that's particularly true on the on the first time I go to this pool of investors and say, "All right, this is the one." The timing for us worked out such that uh, we were starting to really seriously pencil out deals in uh, early 2019. We we did. We were at last and final on a couple, one in North Carolina, one in Georgia. And then suddenly, somewhere in the kind of middle of the year, July August, we started finding that everything we looked at was not penciling out. And I was already a little uh, skittish about the fact that the expansion had been going on for so long. And Wall Street was so clearly detached from the real economy. And so I started uh, saying, listen, Laurie, I think we should kind of message our investors because this this will pay dividends in the future. Let's message them. Melissa. we are not going to bring you a deal right now. We think that we're at the top of the roller coaster uh, ride. And that um, the thing to do right now is to keep you in touch with our thinking. Let you. Uh, we even showed people deals that we decided not to go to. So they understood our thought process. But we are not going to bring uh, you into a deal right now where margins are so so thin and you know the risk of a downturn could basically make those margins disappear now by accident that turned out to look like brilliance right because we were probably at the top we didn't know that covid would be the thing that tipped the roller coaster down but as it turns out uh, it was a, a pretty vicious you know drop when the drop happened so to to me, and I, I've actually just done a, a risk um, scenario analysis for a, for a client on the commercial side, and you know what seems to me to be the most likely scenario is that you know we're going to have some rough times for the next six months. There's going to be people who are hanging in there; they're finding ways to, to on the tenant side to pay rent, on the owner side to make the mortgage, but the wall's going to be hit at some point if this continues, and so it's impossible right now to price risk into your deals. And so I think coming out uh, late 2020, early 2021, you're gonna see an awful lot of people trying to get out of whatever properties they have.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And on on the question, I liked your feedback when you talked about, you know, you've slaved away, you've, you've worked really hard, you've done this all your life, you know, one of these days you're gonna want to have your money work for you. I thought that was really great as far as bringing people into your world. Do you, are there any uh, specific, uh, not problems, but things that you ran into that were a challenge that you could help the listener not have that specific challenge?
0: One of the big challenges that I think Uh, we've we've gone through and we're going through right now is timing uh, the timing of the market Um, I think one of the ways to address that is to admit to your investors that listen I this is my view I have some credibility to have a view um, but I want to hear your concerns about this we may or may not be at the top of the market right now um, but if you if we are I want to hear what how that affects your thinking about this project we actually uh, faced this in a very serious way in Q2 of 2019 when we started um, thinking about raising for a property in North Carolina. Um, it became very clear that this thing was not going to pencil out, and we were, uh, you know, we were on the edge of committing earnest money, and that earnest money would would have been gone, I think, because uh, we would not make the we would not have been able to get those 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 numbers to work. So ultimately, when you're going in there, you need to look at those numbers in cold calculating ways and say, you know, I could probably tell people this would work. You don't want to get into something for the sake of getting into something. You could probably sell it. You may have those talents. The end of the day, you're going to own it. And that is a really scary thing. So stay away from that. We, we came perilously close to owning something that would not have worked out, it would have been a disaster right now.
1: What is the most creative deal you've ever done? Well, the most creative deal I've ever done
0: is the, uh, it's the, uh, the basically, it was a retail deal in Connecticut I, I referred to at the beginning of this. Um, it required all sorts of, um, uh, you know, guarantees because of the, the nature of um, having to move one building in order to build another. And uh, so the, the capital requirements were very steep. Um, investors had to be very tolerant of the risks that were involved. I mean we could have dropped the building uh, but um, at the end of the day, um, it was a tremendous success um, it's a it 's a kind of jewel in the in the um, in the center of this uh, town and it has lots of residential above it as well and so it 's a really high performing property so I was really glad to do it but it was a dramatic and really scary uh, period when we were having to move this this historic structure.
1: And what's a book you recommend? So um, I really
0: like, uh, you know, keeping with the climate resilient thing, uh, a a book called Rising by Elizabeth Rush, which which looks really carefully at what it means in real terms to be uh, in a a coastal zone where uh, the sea is an actual threat because the sea is usually thought of as a benefit. You know, this is the great thing. I live by the ocean. But it just takes a storm to change that. And it happens very quickly. And that puts an enormous strain uh, on real estate and infrastructure. And so that book really opened my eyes. It was a great book.
1: I'm looking it up right now. Um I'm hoping it's on Audible because that's how I read all my books. I've read uh thirty two books so far this year on Audible. And if it's not on Audible, I can't read it as a dyslexic person, but it sounds like a great book, Rising yeah. by Elizabeth Rush, talking about how the ocean is rising. So I will, I will jump into that. Thank you for the book recommendation. Share with us a little bit about where you were five years ago and uh, where you plan to be five years from today.
0: So five years ago, I was kind of at the tail end of a long corporate career. I was working for a bank in London, actually, unhappy. It was, you know, a job. One of those classic jobs in in finance where it paid you a lot, but you, you had to spend a lot to have the job. Um, and I traveled constantly. I traveled so much that I was at risk of not being a resident of any country that year. I think it was twenty thirteen, um, which is not a good thing because you get taxed by multiple countries. Then, um, ultimately, five years, and then I kind of transitioned. Met my my uh, re met Lori Santorelli. Married her, and. I, I had moved to New Jersey, tried to get her to move to New Jersey. And as good a marketing guy as I am, I couldn't get somebody from Colorado to move to New Jersey. So here I am. I'm not, I'm not what, five miles from you now. I'm in Evergreen outside of Denver. Um, five years from now, um, one of the reasons I came to Evergreen, I've got a 14-year-old who's going to go to high school here. Um, she'll be just out of high school if things go well. Uh, it kind of opens up the world. I mean, uh, I have my dad's an Irishman, he was, uh, so I have an Irish passport as well. I think I could spend some time in Europe someday, uh, maybe wow. part of the year. Uh, Lori, I know, loves Belize, and, and I do too. I could spend some time there. I'd love to have multiple large properties, um, a, a group of real estate um, investors who are constantly looking for the next thing um, and living largely off of the passive income that these properties are kicking out. I think that's the plan for us.
1: Awesome. Good stuff. And, uh, how do you give back? You know, I, a
0: couple of different ways. I mean, I've mentored a lot of people. Um, and I, there are people now who, you know, are NBC and PBS and stuff who were my interns years ago. And it's really cool. And I've, I've always drew, had this weird dream of my funeral that all these young people who are now middle-aged would show up and say, yeah, he got, I got my start with him. The, you know, I did like a lot of little league coaching, soccer and baseball through the years. I give uh, to a couple, of, I, I'm not a very, very rich person, but I give some money to uh, Doctors Without Borders every year, pulled a little uh, splinter of shrap- shrapnel out of me in Bosnia when I was a reporter there years ago. And I've always given to them. And just in terms of, you know, uh, helping people get started, I I like talking to people who are on that cusp where I, I don't know quite what to do, or I don't know how to fix my resume to make it work. And I, I can always find time for that. It just seems to give back to me so much. And I, I just love that kind of interaction with people.
1: Michael, <laughs> what is the best way for the listener to get a hold of you?
0: We are at pcrpgroup.com. That's preferred climate resilient properties group.com. Um, I'm all over LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter as well, and um, you know, we'd love to speak to anybody who is uh, in sync with our thinking on, on where risk needs to be calculated into these large property deals.
1: All right, we've got pcrpgroup.com in the show notes right now. So if you're listening, don't worry, you can scroll down, click the link and uh, get a hold of Mike. Mike Moran, thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, my friend, think outside.